teaching series has been encouraging and helpful for us. Has it been encouraging and helpful for us? Yeah. So here's, here's the principle for this teaching series. If you're new this week, it's we want to be here at Anchor, a community of rebuilders. Here's what a rebuilder is. When we look at something that we would say is broken, we look at something that isn't healed or whole, something in the world that hasn't yet been made right, that as followers of Jesus, we wouldn't look at that and walk by it. We wouldn't write it off. We wouldn't be apathetic towards it, but we would move towards it. Why? Believing that God wants to use us to bring something broken towards wholeness. That's what he wants to do with you. Not only inside of you, but use your hands and work through you to bring brokenness to wholeness through the power of God. And my hope is that all of us here in this community, I've said this many times, that we would have taken up this identity of being a rebuilder, even as we're aware of our own imperfections, we're aware of the areas and the journey we're still going on, that we would take up this role as being rebuilders because the world needs much more than critics. It needs much more than observers. It needs rebuilders in this moment. It needs rebuilders in this moment. So Anchor, this is our call. And to do this, we've been looking uh, at uh, the story of Nehemiah, and we'll be continuing to do that. Uh, but this is an interesting conclusion to a teaching series. The idea of being a rebuilder is a hopeful principle. It's a principle that is, that is intricately connected to actually offering hope. But the other side of this is important for us to talk about. To, today, we're going to talk about rebuilding and disappointment. Rebuilding and disappointment. Here's something you might want to know. It's a, what I would say is a principle of being a rebuilder is that if you're going to be a rebuilder, you're going to come face to face with disappointment. And so if we're going to become face to face with disappointment, we have to deprogram the myth of this time it'll be perfect. Have you ever thought, found yourself saying that? This next time it'll be perfect. As a church planner, you know, uh, you, or you may guess, or if you've been a while around here for a while, you've heard me share stories of church planting, and every time there's a church planting venture or a new church planting thing, there usually is some idea in the community and in the leadership that this time it'll be perfect that this time everybody will be completely emotionally healthy, that this time we'll, we'll see God move in ways that haven't shown up in the past, that this time it'll be perfect. And no matter what, one day, one month, one year, reality happens, and then sometimes disappointment happens too. So to be a rebuilder means, doesn't mean avoiding reality, but facing reality. And so what do we do with that disappointment? Our, uh, our staff, we've been talking about this phenomenon, maybe you've heard about it, called the Great Resignation, where people, after the last year, we've had so much time to think about our lives and to think about what we want to do and reflect on that, that sociologists and critical observers of the world are saying that there's this great resignation happening right now, where people are saying no to the job they had and stepping into a new profession, a new vocation. And a lot of times this comes after some beautiful self-reflection that's motivated it, but as we're talking about it casually as a staff, we're saying, I want I wonder if people will two years in realize that they're still facing the same problems they experienced in that previous job. Maybe that doesn't sound hopeful at all, but you know I think it also feels realistic. Because we've all walked into the new home uh, or the new dating relationship or the new fill in the blank and thought this time it'll be perfect, only to find out that turns out it's not perfect. So as rebuilders, we have to ask the question, we have to come to terms with, what does it mean uh, to do, what does it mean to face disappointment? Here's another principle. The rebuilder has to find a way. The rebuilder has to find a way to, in prayer and in community with others, shed the naivety without shedding the hope. 
I want to say that again because this is incredibly, this is vital if you're going to be a rebuilder. The rebuilder has to find a way to shed the naivety that says, oh, this time it's going to be perfect without shedding the hope. You see, it is in, it's a vital role of an, a rebuilder to hold on to hope, robust hope. But we have to find a way to delineate between naivety and hope. Now, this is exactly what Nehemiah comes face to face with. Nehemiah, uh, if you, just to catch us up on the story, it begins in Assyria with King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. Nehemiah hears about his homeland, Jerusalem in ruins, and says, King Artaxerxes, would you hook me up with some resources and commission me out to do this rebuilding work so that my hometown and God's people doesn't lie in ruins anymore? And King Artaxerxes says, you got it, go for it my summation of it. And King, right, so Nehemiah goes there, rebuilds it, um, commissions it, prays, they have a party, uh, they commit to following God, and then Nehemiah leaves because that was a part of the condition that King Artaxerxes released him on. He goes to hang out with the king again, and at some point he travels back to Jerusalem, and what he finds is heartbreaking. It's interesting to note that the beginning of Nehemiah began with a heartache of wanting to build something and ends with a heartache, realizing that the lives of the people are still needing the rebuilding touch of God. See, in Nehemiah chapter 10, they make a commitment. They say, we will not intermarry. Now, intermarriage for us is different for them. For them, it was connected to if we intermarry with those that don't worship Yahweh, then they would bring idols into the community and thus keep us from the worship of Yahweh. So they made a resolve to stay free from idols in uh, making sure that they would only marry people that knew about Yahweh, knew about God, knew about his grace to keep that focus on Yahweh. And they made a commitment to Sabbathing, to making sure that they would rest and they would steward their resources, not just for kind of emotional self-care, but as a command and a way of observing God who himself rested and now works when we are resting so we don't ultimately have to work endlessly because he alone is sovereign and he is working even when we aren't. And they made a commitment to, to tithe and to worship and to see all their resources as opportunities to steward. And they made all these commitments in Nehemiah chapter 10. In Nehemiah chapter 13, he shows back up on the scene and all of them are broken. It's like all the things they agreed upon that they signed, they're like, signed the papers and they're like celebrating. All of a sudden it's like, did we forget that? And so we're picking the story up in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 uh, to the end. Um, and this is a sample of what we see in this last chapter um, really of Nehemiah facing this disappointment and we'll be asking how did he handle it? Did he handle it in an appropriate way? And it begins in verse 23. It says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Amnon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or a language of the one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Language was incredibly important because that was how the stories of faith were passed on. And, and so how could you tell the stories of faith in a, lang in a, in a language that hasn't, wasn't used to communicate the stories of faith? It was incredibly important. Half of their children spoke this other language. In verse 25, I rebuked them. <laughs> okay, all right. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. All right, Nehemiah. I beat some of the men up and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons or you to take their daughters in marriage to their sons or yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations where there was no king like him? He was loved by his God and God made him a king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. 
Must we hear how you, that too, you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joadah and son of Elishab, the high priest, was the son of Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Sanballat was the greatest critic of this rebuilding work, if you remember the story. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each of his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And this interesting passage that's repeated throughout the book of Nehemiah concludes it. Remember me with favor, my God. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to pull anyone or your own hair out. Hopefully you haven't. But I remember in some desperate moments in college when I was studying and pulling an all-nighter. Just for you to know, I often, I, I rarely pulled an all-nighter. I made a law that it's better to get a C plus than an A if it means I get good sleep. So you can just take that for free. But when I did pull an all-nighter, I remember some times where I'd be just like pulling my hair as my fatigue kept me from fully understanding, thinking that if I studied more, I would get better, but you know, whatever, that's not what we're talking about here. But I would pull my hair, I wasn't able to pull it out. Now years have passed and maybe it comes out a little easier, I don't know. But like, think about Nehemiah, he's going on the scene and he's like just ripping people's hair out. That's like talking high levels of adrenaline, high levels of anger. This guy is like seeing red and going at 8,000 RPMs. Not only that, but he's calling curses down on people. And it even says he just straight beat people up. Did you catch that? Kids, this is not necessarily how we are to or, you know, organize and imitate. You know, this is not how we're doing it. Now, it's interesting, you know, Nehemiah has a companion book. It's the book of Ezra. Ezra is a leader like Nehemiah is a leader in the same time period. They're in the same situation. They're watching the same things. They're turning on the same news. They're reading the same newspaper. They're eating lunch with the same types of people. Ezra rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. Now, the book of Ezra tells a story of Ezra watching the same thing happen as Israel breaks from what they've committed and turns towards the same problems they consistently found themselves throughout Scripture. And Ezra has a different response than Nehemiah. It's interesting. Ezra 9.3 reads like this, and it says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Wow, did you catch that? Nehemiah pulls everybody else's hair out. Ezra pulls his own hair out. I remember a friend of mine, uh, talking with a friend of mine, and he, we were talking about this passage, both these passages. He said, you know, when I was in theological, when I was in theological graduate school, I asked our Old Testament professor, in view of, in view of these two passages, hey, who did it right? Am I supposed to pull other people's hair out or am I supposed to pull my own hair out? And the professor said something classic, wise, what if they both did it wrong? What if they both did it wrong? Now this might feel like sacrilege to say, well, they're in the Bible. They are characters in the Bible. And up to this point, we've been asking, let's follow Nehemiah's example. But here's this important lesson for us to, us to understand if we were to be Bible students and understand the scriptural story. What is described is not always prescribed. Do you hear that? What is described is not always prescribed. 
So the description of a story is not always prescriptive for how we are to deal with our own anger, for our own defeat, for our own frustration, for our own disappointment. Contemporary psychology would delineate Nehemiah and Ezra as two different examples. Now, I'm going to ask for a little bit of vulnerability here, so prepare yourself, prepare yourself. You know, the first, Nehemiah would be called an externalizer. He's externalizing his anger. Those of us that are externalizers, like when we're angry, everybody knows about it, or at least some people know about it. If we're wise, emotionally healthy, and mature, still even our select people can tell and know about it. And usually the caring ones among us, the friends, of us when we get angry, they're like, hey, why don't you go take a break for a little bit? Because they can see it. Anybody an externalizer? Who's an externalizer here? All right, we have, you might need to elbow the person you're next to. But then Nehemiah is clearly an externalizer, and if I was to be honest, not quite a healthy one. Would you agree? Ezra, on the other hand, is the other side, an internalizer. And so while externalizers, everybody knows when they're angry, internalizers is the exact opposite. Rarely do the internalizers even know when they're angry. Any internalizers in the house? Oftentimes internalizers, the anger doesn't, doesn't go out there, but it's held in within you and shows up in somatic stuff like headaches, migraines, and some stick, some stomach sickness, or, or sometimes sleepless nights, or rushing towards a destructive coping mechanism. Why? Because there's all this bottled up carbonated anger that's not escaping. Internalizing and externalizing. What if both are not the way forward when we deal with our own disappointment? The only wor- one worthy of, that, the only one that is, does every description of him is also a prescription is Jesus. So whereas we wouldn't follow Jonah when it's described that he runs away from God's command. It's describing that. It's not prescribing that. We wouldn't uh, follow Nehemiah when, when Nehemiah 13 is laid out because it's describing, not prescribing, but every aspect in the Gospels that documents the life of Jesus is described and also prescribed because he alone is worthy of imitation from A to Z, from beginning to end, because he alone is worthy. So here in this last teaching, in this rebuilding teaching series, we're going to focus not on Nehemiah as the way forward, interestingly enough, but we are going to focus on Jesus, the ultimate rebuilder, the architect, and the rebuilder himself. And we're going to be looking and, and, and comparing Nehemiah and Jesus and seeing Jesus as the great rebuilder that we are to model all of our life on. It is interesting, like, Jesus and Nehemiah have a similarity. Um, that uh, you, you might maybe have already thought of. There's a time in the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus documented in the New Testament, where Jesus gets angry. In Matthew 21, it describes Jesus going into the temple and, and being really angry at what he sees. Now, on one level, there's a similarity. They have a godly conviction, and they're wanting, they're, and they're seeing it not in alignment, reality not in alignment with what, they, what, what, this, what their godly conviction is, and it frustrates them. So in some ways, this is kind of redemptive in a way where anger itself is not the problem. But it's like how it manifests. Well, Nehemiah beats people. Jesus beats up some furniture. But even more, the cause of the anger is so different. 
You see, Nehemiah is wanting to preserve a sense of purity and keep those that don't name the, know the name of Yahweh from entering into the community through marriage. And so he's wanting to stop that, seeing that as that is the proof to preventing idolatry. But when we look at Matthew chapter 21, what we see is it's something actually quite different. You see, Jesus is angered because what has happened in the, te- uh, the court of the Gentiles, which where Jesus gets angry, is, is that this court of the Gentiles is filled with these merchants and traders and people selling animals for sacrifice. But it's the court of the Gentiles. It's the place that don't, the people that don't know Yahweh, that didn't grow up within Judaism, are to come and learn about God. So why is Jesus angry? He's angry that this space dedicated for people that didn't grow up knowing God, it's dedicated towards them now is being filled up with these traders and these merchants so that the people that don't know or didn't have the access to God ever but are interested don't have space to live and be and, and lean in and hear the stories of God for the first time. Jesus is angry because the people that did not grow up in Judaism, did not grow up knowing Yahweh, are being excluded. Nehemiah is wanting to exclude them. There's two different approaches. It's interesting that Nehemiah could have said, hey, there can be a pathway for people to come to know and trust in God, but he doesn't even think like those those terms. It's fascinating. So what what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at Jesus and seeing him as the rebuilder, especially when we think about what do we do with our disappointment? Do we go the way of Nehemiah? Do we go the way of Ezra? Do we go the way of internalizing? Do we go the way of externalizing? Or do we go the way of Jesus? The first thing we le- see when we pay attention to Jesus, the only wor- one worthy of, of, of all that is described, is prescribed, is we see faithfulness over fruitfulness. Faithfulness over fruitfulness. Faithfulness over fruitfulness. You see, there's certain roles and positions in the world out there where you're dependent on producing. There's expectations, and there might be accountability if you don't produce. And that might be real in some roles and some jobs, but when it comes to being a rebuilder, when it comes to be a person that has taken the mantle of kingdom and Jesus on themselves and wanting to do God's work, when it comes to that, we cannot put fruitfulness first. Fruitfulness is a result of faithfulness. Fruitfulness comes from faithfulness. When we place fruitfulness first, we ultimately feel responsible for what God alone is responsible for. And that manifests in anxiety, arrogance, and anger. Anxiety because we, when we feel like we aren't performing, we feel like it's our very lives on the line. We feel like we are at stake. Arrogance, because when we are succeeding, we think we did it. And we think we can't imagine a situation where we're not taken out of it. In fact, we think the whole thing might be doomed if we are taken out. And anger, because when someone's not conforming to the plan, we don't have another way forward but just to unleash on them. Because it's all about fruitfulness. It's all about producing Jesus gives us another glimpse, a new, another way forward beyond the Nehemiah-Ezra predicament that we often find ourselves in. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Jesus connects faithfulness with fruitfulness. He says, those who abide in me will bear much, what? Fruit. Those who abide in, what does abiding mean? 
Abiding means staying close to. It means under the authority of. It means drawing strength from. The image he gives is of a vine and branches, where there's a vine and there's branches. And what is the role of the branch? It's to take the life of the vine and bring it into itself, to stay connected to the vine so what fruit and flowers might happen. That's what a, vine, that's what a branch does. And Jesus says, this is what you do. You stay close to me. You stay connected to me. You stay in community. You stay in prayer. You continue to step forward into spiritual practices and disciplines. You stay, you stay behind me. You pursue me. You pay attention to me. And when you do those things, he promises. It's not a if the market is right and potentially depending on what the crowd believes or what, what kind of the, uh, kind of the uh, whatever that's popular in the moment. He's, he's not conditioning it. He goes, you will bear much fruit. It's not conditioned, it's promised. But it's only if we stay with faithfulness. You see, this is important for us in this moment. If we're gonna be a rebuilder, we have to be okay not seeing the fruitfulness happen the first moment. We have to be okay giving a life towards something before we see the healing we wanna see, before we see the change we wanna see, whether that's inside of us or out there. In fact, I would say the rebuilder's freedom is found in faithfulness first. Because when the rebuilder believes his faithfulness first, like Jesus describes in John chapter 15, we are not ultimately on the hook. We're just called to be faithful. Anchor, let me just tell you, you're not called to produce spiritual things. You're called to be faithful to the one who has the power to produce powerful fruit. Second is honesty without attack. Honesty without attack. Yeah, there's two equal opposite errors of oftentimes. It's one is to not be honest and to turn a blind eye to somebody who is walking down a path that is destructive or self-destructive because what? You want to preserve the friendship. And so if you are honest, you're worried about what might happen. Or the opposite side, to attack the person um, in anger. And oftentimes we slip, depending on the person, into either one of those things. We've got to find a way to be about honesty without attack. See, it's not holy to constantly swallow another's toxicity or to ignore a person's departure from the faith with the hope of, I need them, I need to stay connected with them, I like them so much, I don't want them to leave me. That's not holy. One person said to me years ago that it is, it is the true friend that loves the friend more than the friendship. And it is codependence or apathy that loves the friendship more than the friend. If you love the friendship more than the friend, you are saying, I need something from you and I'm not enough as I am in my own relationship with God. But uh, the love of the friend sometimes shows up, and it's important to note, the love of the friend sometimes shows up in holy conf- or loving confrontation, but never as attack, because the other side of it, and some of our personality types are geared towards this, is towards attacking rather than silence. Jesus gives us like a different way forward. He's able to do honesty without attack. There are so many examples of, like, of this with his disciples, but I want to key in on the, his example with Jesus with Peter. If you know the relationship of Jesus and Peter, you know that Peter is a bonehead, and that's like such good news for me to hear. 
At one time, they're all sitting down before Jesus goes to the cross, and he says, hey, just so you know, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter's like, yo, man, you, I mean, first of all, these 11 did not need to hear about that. And also, like, not true. I'm like, I'm with you. That's my summary. And what happens is, of course, G- or Peter does deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. One of the times is at a charcoal fire, where if you've been around a charcoal fire, it's, impor- it's interesting that it makes note of this in the Gospel of Luke. It smells different from a wood fire. It's a very noticeable smell. Um, people that study the brain say that olfactory senses are the most, like, re- they're connected to memory. So it's interesting in John chapter 21 where Jesus and Peter have like a little tete-a-tete, a little, little, little private hangout that Jesus prepares a fire for Peter and Jesus to have this conversation and it's a charcoal fire. It's almost as if Jesus is letting Peter know, hey, just so you know, this is what's coming. We're going to be reliving that moment that you just had around a charcoal fire. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The amount of times that you've rejected me is the amount of times that I will ask if you love me. What's the point of this? It's to unnecessarily put his finger in the wound of Peter's rejection? No, the point of it is to reinstitute Peter as a leader in the early church. He is is honest with Peter. Peter knows exactly what's happening. It may be even painful for Peter, but the point is not causing Peter pain. The point is reinstituting Peter on this path of leadership. It's honesty without attack. It's not the codependence and apathy of turning a blind eye to real problems. And it's also not the violent attack of somebody that's still in the middle of their journey. It's honesty without attack. This is how we as rebuilders engage in our journey. We look at people that are, st- are struggling and we figure out prayerfully with the Spirit of God and in community, would you give me ways to be honest without attacking? To be in very simple but profound words, be Jesus to The third principle we learn from Jesus as the ultimate rebuilder is progress over perfect. Progress over perfect. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which, if you just read that, using only our cultural scripts of perfection, it can be pretty darning. You like that churchy term? But the Greek idea of perfect is different from our understanding of perfect. The Greek idea of perfect is telos. The Greek word for uh, perfect is telos, which means completion or goal. It's a forward movement towards a goal. Jesus is inviting us to move towards completion, to move towards the goal. That's the invitation. But our our current cultural understanding of perfection is egocentric and uh, fixated on flaws. I can't be perfect like this imperfect person that is presenting themselves as perfect. I want to be perfect. It's egocentric and fixated on flaws. They're two different ideas of perfect. So we need to embrace progress and reject the quest for perfection. You guys know this. 
When we demand perfection from ourselves and from others, we stunt growth and sabotage relationship. Let's say that again. We need to just know this. When we demand perfection from ourselves and from others, we stunt growth and sabotage relationship. Who has been trying, who has tried to help somebody read? Don't worry, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But there was one person, I see, Whitney. What a terrible thing to expect perfection. What a terrible thing to be like, you should be improving. Who has been in a situation or on a, a table where a math book's been open and there's been somebody trying to help them and how easy tears come in that situation and what a tender moment that is and what a terrible thing to expect perfection. What a beautiful thing to say, what does progress look like today? What if Jesus was saying that to you? What if Jesus was saying, what does it look like for progress to happen today? What if we said that to each other? What does it look like for progress to happen today? What does it look like for you to partner with the Spirit of God today? What does it look like? I'm not asking for perfection. I'm not asking you to have reached the goal. As Paul says, it's not like I have already reached it. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for us to define what progress looks like today. See, when we encounter disappointment, then we have a response to that. But if we expect perfection, we'll damn the person and sabotage the relationship. It is the wise leader that, or the wise friend that looks at a person and says, when they're struggling and says, okay, now I know where you're at and we can understand what progress is. It is the anxious and angry person that says, improve now or else. Jesus Think about how patient Jesus has been with us. He knows everything. First John says this, it says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows what? Everything. Jesus is patient with you. He is progress-oriented, not perfection-oriented. And when we are people that encounter uh, disappointment, we need to embrace the same things. I love what the uh, hymnist pastor John Newton said, where he says this, and band, you can come up. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But I am still, or I'm not, or I'm not what I hope to, I'm not what I, sorry, I'm going to start reading that again. <laughs> I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Could we say that together? Repeat after me. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But let's say this part loud. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is a word. This is a word for the church. It's the word that the world needs to see the church at practicing. Amen? It's the word that the church, the church needs to embrace. 
Because there's nothing more compelling than a people that are actually living like they understand the gospel. Because here's the thing, Nehemiah returns from Assyria and he condemns those he sees not living into perfection. He calls down curses on them, he pulls their hair out, he beats them up, but when Jesus enters into a world that is not perfection, what does he do? He says, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus emerges, he comes from a place far off, heaven, perfection with the Trinity. If anyone knew perfection, it was Jesus, the sinless one, who alone is worthy of consistent imitation from A to Z, and he shows up in a manger. He shows up in humility. He doesn't show up angry, dominating, domineering, pushing, and um, and yelling. He doesn't show up like that. He shows up to lepers and says, come closer, come closer. I want to touch you. Nobody's touched you. I know. I'm going to touch you, and you're going to know healing today. He shows up to women that have struggled and had a past and a history, and he says, you know what? You are welcome here. Your tears can be used to wash my feet. I receive you. He shows up to Gentile women and says, you know what? Today what you asked for has been given to those that have been bleeding for 12 years and are ritually unclean. He says, I know you, I see you, and you're healed. To those at, the, at the, both sides of the cross, he says, hey, you don't get it? because you're still critiquing me, but you get it. And so today you're gonna be with me in paradise. He's not waiting for perfection. He's not waiting for excellence. He's waiting for a commitment. He's waiting for us, a yes. He's waiting for us to say, here I am, imperfect. He knows it all. He knows it all. He knows it all. Every morning we can wake up, we say, God, you know it. You know it. And yet, If my heart condemns me, you don't. And you're greater than my heart. There's two opportunities to respond right now. There's communion underneath your tables, or chairs. It's just bread, juice, that doesn't taste that great. But here's the beautiful thing. And I want you to hold it, don't rush to it, please. Here's the beautiful thing, and this is an example for what God will do with us. God will take stuff that doesn't taste that great. He'll turn it into something great. So as you take time to reflect on what he's done for you, he's taken your shame, he's taken your brokenness on himself. All of a sudden, these, this stuff becomes a reflection of how much he loves you. Take some time during the song to to take that and to remember that. If this is your first time coming to a church, this is your first time hearing what we're calling the gospel, the good news of Jesus, you're invited to take it for the first time. You're invited to say, yes, yes, what he said I want. The death of Jesus, the life of me, new life, his death, I want that. You're invited to say that. You're invited to receive and and, and say yes to Jesus for the first time. There's also prayer on the wings. We want you to take advantage of prayer. We believe that you might have something happening in your body, some pain you need prayer for. There might be something happening in your head where it's a thought pattern you can't escape. You want prayer for that. There might be something happening out there in your family or in friends that you want prayer for. We want to pray with you. It's not weird. It's something Jesus followers do. You're invited to receive prayer. And we're all invited to sing this song where we repeat the line, build your church. One thing we're asking, we're praying over Anchor is that we would rise up Anchor 
Tonight, that's what we're going to rally cry around, the Team 360. Rise up, rise up, rise up, Anchor. Let's rise to the occasion. Let's embrace the role of being rebuilders. And let's believe that what Jesus said is true. That we may be imperfect, but the gates of hell won't rise against what he has built.